0: This next episode really touches on the entire buy-build-sell cycle. Lee Hackett is a former professional footballer turned businessman. After finishing up his playing career, he cut his teeth in the corporate world before stepping into his brother's business, where he helped scale the company over a four-year period before selling it to a listed entity. Lee talks about what is required to scale a company and make it attractive, but also how to position things for the right acquirer. He then takes us through the transaction process, including the timing and even some of the earnout conditions he had to fulfill, which is a great insight for anyone thinking of selling their business one day. Finally, Lee talks about his latest venture in the tech space and how they're now using acquisitions as a growth strategy. And he even touches on some of those challenges that come with the approach. Now, make sure you listen out for Lee's top tip for anyone looking to buy or sell a business. This is Lee Hackett. G'day, Lee. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Simon. Great to be here.
0: Mate, I've been very excited to um, have you on board and, and hear about your story. It's um, it's one I think our listeners will really enjoy. And I know we're going to talk about a bunch of different things, but maybe you could um, kick off and just, just give us a little bit of background so you, so the listeners can get a sense of who you are.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, no, as I said, I'm looking forward to talking about buying build strategies. It's something that's really passionate to my heart, but Bit of, bit of history, so um, uh, in a snapshot i was a kind of left school and uh, ended up being a professional footballer so that, but that 's kind of for another day and the connection between business and football but left uh, playing football and i kind of luckily when i when I played professional sports I had to go to college so I, I we ended up doing i ended up doing business studies which come in quite quite handy, which allowed me to get into a um, Quite a big corporate when I, when I left football in a management team and um, kind of fell into M&A at that point and uh, into that business. It was big, large footy 100 business, uh, corporate, super acquisitive, uh, buying businesses all over the UK. So I was really young, mid-20s, kind of super exciting, uh, buying these businesses, going in, setting up management teams. Um, all of those kind of things. So I was on the operational integration of that of that side, uh, but I was in construction engineering, and then realised that I could do this for myself. And um, you know, uh, you know, I wanted to kind of stop working for a corporate and then uh, move into kind of startups and scale ups and and acquisitions and all of those kind of things. So um, I, when I was twenty seven, then did that with a group of other people and. Uh, in construction, and engineering products, and um, and then got into the buy and build model, which we're going to talk about today.
0: Great, yeah, that's fantastic. It's um, as you said. I mean, we we'll, we can talk more about football and sports another time. But it's uh, it is interesting to see. Um, you know, I've had a number of guests on the show who have either played played sport professionally or or even were in the military and I, I've just been interested in the parallels between people who come from a very very disciplined background and how that then translates to business so i don't I don't know if you've seen those same parallels but um, but yeah I've, I, I do find it interesting
1: definitely yeah absolutely um the the, the discipline um, structure which is pretty handy in business um Uh, for sure people uh being coachable all of these kind of things are transferable skills from yeah the military sport elite sport um the military Uh, i was really lucky when i left football playing football soccer i uh my mentor one of my mentors was 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 actually ex-military um you know kind of elite military sas type stuff and um so, I was in, in, in who give me a lot of guidance in management and people and teams and all of those kind of things. And yeah, it, it's it saved me really well. But definitely, yeah, we could do another podcast on that for sure.
0: <laughs> it sounds good. And SAS as a mentor, was there a move of, you know, and if they really don't listen to you, this is how you put them in a choker hold? And-
1: yeah, good <laughs> of that. yeah, there was a bit <laughs> of that going on. Um, but, yeah, it was more, you know, getting the right kind of mix of teams, And but if they don't work, then, yeah, choke them out. That was the thing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's uh, also useful for kids too if you've got them at home and you're Absolutely. in a current lockdown environment. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, um, tell us a little bit about um, CMS because that, that was one of the, I guess, as you mentioned to me before, is one of the sort of bigger transactions that you've been involved in. Maybe you could give us a little history of that and kind of you know, how it sort of led to that ultimate outcome.
1: Yeah, so I was, um, as I said, in construction. I was in a corporate, so my kind of training uh, in M&A and buy and build has definitely come from that corporate structure um in in how to do transactions how not to do transactions um how to structure transactions and but i i was really lucky that um i also had a family member who was also in construction my older brother peter and he'd started a business cms he started that business and uh, while i was in uh, travis perkins and he'd asked me to come and work with him a couple of times and i kind of I uh, turned them down and I was enjoying working for a corporate. But the um, he'd, he'd got that business to a particular point. And what my job was to kind of come in and um, help him scale that business. So I think in any growth strategy, um, there's certain phases that a business would go through. So him coming from a kind of entrepreneurial mindset, entrepreneurial background, and me with a kind of entrepreneurial mindset, but also that corporate training, was kind of handy, and we've seen the opportunity in the market. Um, so the, the the we I come in with the um, with the mindset of helping him grow that business pretty fast, and we've seen the opportunity to that we if we did it also through organic growth, so an organic growth strategy, new products, new services, new markets, more people, bigger infrastructure, but also through potential acquisition. Then it was it was a way of supercharging that growth. So. CMS was a kind of mix of, you know, the typical startup to scale up kind of phase. And a scale-up was my job. And, but also acquisitions. And that we 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 kind of knew at the beginning of the journey that if we did this well, we kind of knew who the profile of the type of acquirers would be for that business. So, and actually the business we ended up selling it to was one of the companies we we profiled at the beginning of the exercise. So it was very strategic, very deliberate. Um, but acquisition and, and and buy and build was a big part of that strategy.
0: That's, that's really interesting. I mean, of course, we, we often advocate and you hear people talking about starting with the end in mind. But I guess in my experience and what I see a lot out of there is that a lot of people kind of Sort of fall into what they do, you know they maybe they did work for another company and then they've left that job or decided they want to go out on their own and hey, I've just done this and I know how to do it or I'm good at it, whatever that might be, and then they end up starting a business and off they go and and I think so many of them do that with this view of well, I need to earn a living and I want to do something that I know and you know there's a bunch of variables there, but most people don't think about what is the actual end game, and so it it sounds like this was quite a deliberate plan for you and your brother
1: yeah no very much so i think i could have never have started the business at that time i had a corporate mindset and so actually that was the reason why i didn't go to work for him a couple of times it was um because i enjoyed the corporate piece so he, he but he did and still does and so that that kind of where he got the business to and then me coming in and using that kind of let's call about the structure we talked about the discipline organizational structure you know the kind of adaptation from startup to to scale up for me is probably my specialist area now you know how to how to kind of phase out of that startup mentality into a scale up mentality which if you yeah, want to acquisitions yeah, you're going to need to have a bit of structure in the business so yeah it was kind of it was just good timing and as you know Simon so, mean, you know often these things need a little bit of look also um, timing market needs to be right, all of those kind of things, but it was very strategic, yeah, very deliberate
0: yeah that 's interesting do, do you um, you know i've seen i 've seen a lot of buyers, particularly in the last year actually it 's been interesting a um, lot of lot of buyers coming out of um, the corporate world and wanting to do their own thing and wanting to acquire and not necessarily having run their own businesses before but had held senior leadership positions. And, and the skills are transferable, but I'm, I'm curious to get your feedback or thoughts here. Entrepreneurial mindset, do start up, start growing, you know, corporate kind of learning knowledge, capabilities, approaches, sort of top down kind of almost. Is there a line in the sand where corporatizing starts to make more sense or do you think it's wholly transferable?
1: Yeah, no, I think that is a... Um I think it depends if where you where, where I've seen it work, you know, to give you some examples. In that scenario, is where I think the business that you're acquiring is at a certain scale, so it's already mm. hit a particular scale, and let's say it's turnaround and stuff like that, right? So that you know, we're, it's a bit of a problem business, and you want to put a group of people in there, change the management team. That works, I think, because that corporate way of looking at it is necessary. Right, it's almost not. It's counter startup mentality, if that makes sense. Right, that's why accountants do start do turnarounds. Right, you know, it's it's is because it's it's often just a kind of financial engineering. So, yeah, and right.
0: usually there's a working model there too, right? So yeah. it's it's actually it actually has a business. It does function. It has customers. It makes money. It make generates revenue. Even it's just Correct. usually not generating profit, right?
1: Correct. And and if you then do some financial engineering, you know what you're doing, and you kind of um, tweak the business and often change the management team or some of the management team, and then it can have it a good effect. And that's I think where it does work. I think where there's an interest in that there is a line between. I think when that business is, as I said, one of the phases for me that that certain companies, a lot of companies struggle with, this is actually where the buy and build model becomes really interesting, is they hit a kind of ceiling of scale. So, you know, and that, it it depends on whether the business is a product business or a services business. So it's, you know, and it can be actually quite small in revenue where the business owner, hits a particular point in terms of their skill set on how to get out of that startup mentality and think about organizational structure and systems and processes and all that, you know, kind of non-sexy stuff. They also need to change the team, right? Because obviously some of the people that were there from the beginning, you know, uh, won't come on the further journey. And there's often a businesses hit that uh, that that ceiling. And that ceiling can be quite low. You're right, in terms of revenue. But if you start to then put someone with that business who has that understanding of scale and how to scale, I think that's where that, that, that piece starts to become really interesting. And actually, it's kind of where I was with Peter in my brother in CMS. You know, he, he'd got the business to a really good level, super profitable, really growth. I come in with a bit more of a corporate approach, and that kind of hockey stick effect, um, you know, happens. And um, But, that, that, yeah, I think that is, a, that, is a, um, that is a fine line where it can be really effective.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you share with us what was the size of the business in terms of its revenue by the time you came into it?
1: $3 million. So um that was around $3 million in, in revenues. Really entrepreneurial, uh, great people, you know, kind of your typical – you, you, great startup right where it's um a lot a band almost like a band of people right the individual businesses within a business yep which is um you know kind of in sellers uh, living on the difference um you know all of that kind of stuff and but then to scale that to 40 50 people it's a different approach right because you can't you can't scale that type of uh, mentality
0: yeah, yeah. Look, t- time and time again. I mean, there's obviously slightly different thresholds for different industries and business types. So it's you know this is not a one-size-fits-all comment. But I, I do see often that you know the team and the structure and the resources that get you to two or three mil is not going to be the same vehicle that gets you from two to three to ten. Um, and and similarly, even often the the you know what got you to ten won't get you to twenty or thirty. Yeah. So it's. It, yeah. Do, do you see those sort of thresholds in the, in the businesses you've been involved with?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the, um, you know, the, the, the most difficult part of business, in my experience. You know, that, that phase between, you know, and, and it, you're right, it isn't tied to a particular revenue or particular amount of people or the business. It depends on the business, but you kind of know when it's there. And that's why I think a lot of businesses don't scale Right, that that for me is the number one factor is because the owner manager maybe doesn't have the ability, maybe doesn't have the, the the desire to do things in a very different way. But that's also the hardest piece, you know, for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And so, how long had um, how long had Peter been running the company before you you came and got involved?
1: Yeah, two or three years.
0: To three years. I mean, that's a great, great go from two, you know two to three years, starting to hit three mil and ready to scale and really launch. It's uh, we've had some crazy guests on our show, which aren't the norm, but I think you know in terms of a couple of years to build that platform is is still pretty good.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and the-
0: yeah, I was just going to say, where, and where did where did you take it from there? What was the sort of timeline and the growth stick and and all the rest of it?
1: Yeah, so we 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 really had that hockey stick effect um, in terms of the. Um, uh, the growth. We were growing, you know, from a, a kind of year after I came in, and we started to implement that strategy and add more people and add more products and more process and all of those kind of things. But we we were seeing forty to fifty percent year year on year growth, um, expanding wow. into different countries, um, exporting into different countries, buying product in from different countries. You know, so looking at our cost base, looking at our sales infrastructure moved into manufacturing our own product Um so you you know we were seeing huge huge growth and um over that next two to three year period so by the time i i joined peter when i was 27 and i left or we we actually cms you know four years later so and the business had had, had grew four or five times since then
0: yeah wow Out of interest, I mean, and and maybe you've touched a bit on this already, but it's you know you've just mentioned a whole bunch of things that you started doing when you came on board, and I'm 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 going to assume or guess here that that you probably didn't do all of that all at once on day one. So, um, so given that you ended up doing lots of things, I'm curious as to if there is there one or two few things that you see that stop companies being able to break through that barrier and go and grow into that next phase.
1: Oh look, there's 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 probably lots of things, but the one that and again it, there's maybe a bit of confirmation bias here for me because it's an area I kind of specialize in and, and have specialized in since, but it it's that it's that start up to scale up approach, right? So it's it's moving in from a changing the mindset and the life cycle of the business from being a startup and then to thinking about scale and um how and organizational structures and all of that and systems and processes and marketing and sales and cost, right. You know, it's and how to control that cost. Um, and it, 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 the, the biggest change becomes on the founder, right? Often it's the founder that it becomes the limiting factor. And, um, you know, that's the, that's just the reality of it. And so for me, that's the, the area, which is the hardest adaptation. And the one that probably most people, when they most organisations um, who try to do it, uh, certainly, where I see the, the most problematic uh, areas.
0: Yeah, I guess like what we were saying earlier that the you know the current structure is not necessarily the same structure to take you forward to the next level of the business. But um, invariably, I guess it's the same thing with even the founder, right? You know, it could be a great founder up to a point, but then perhaps out of their depth for the next the next level.
1: Yeah. And that, and- you know, the, the ones that, the, the, the and there's absolutely nothing wrong in that, right? You know, I, I think that's part of the problem. You know, the founder can often think, well, what's up with me, right? You know, well, what, why can't I do this? I see other people doing it and it looks easy to them. And But, it, you know, the ones that I, the founders that I um, see break through that, have that humility to say, you know what, actually, maybe I don't want that, first of all. Maybe I want to stay at a startup and that's fine. But if I if I do want to do it, then I've got to probably put some people around me that have a different mentality or have a different skill set, and yeah, um, yeah. So that humility to do that is is for me is, is is gold dust, and they're the businesses that then go on to be very successful. And yeah. generalise,
0: uh, I, I think no, no, but I think it's I think it's great advice, and it's it's a great insight. It's um, you know I've I've had met numerous business owners who had the Kind of emotional intelligence you're talking about, you know, and and the humility to put their hand up and say, "Look, I've, you know, I think I've done okay, but I'm, I'm, you know, the rest of it's a mystery to me in terms of where to go and how to go." And um, so, yeah, I, I and I think your point there about, you know, do they want to keep doing that and keep growing is a really important one. Um, we talk a lot on this show about, you know, no, the fact that nobody's really born to do business. I mean, business is just a construct of life and, you know, technically, really, we're all born to live our lives, <laughs> not not to necessarily do business. So now, I've, of course, that integrates really well with a lot of people. But I don't know, I just think people need to ask, what kind of life do you want, right? Your business should fundamentally be a vehicle for delivering that. Yeah. Um, and so I know I've had a few clients who, when you talk about scaling up and what's involved from a time and effort and money perspective and what they need to put in to get it to that next level, some do just say, no, nah, you know what? I don't want that.
1: <laughs> My life's pretty good. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's, and, and run a business really profitably, have a good life and good living. Nothing wrong in that at all. I think the problem comes from a, when you get that kind of misalignment in regards to, I want to scale a business. Um, and, but I, you know, I, I don't appreciate what it does take and that lack of kind of humility, maybe. Um, that's when it becomes problematic, of course, and, um, and, and very stressful. Right. For because a lot of people say to me, you know, you kind of you, you do these startups to scale ups and it's really hard. Even my wife says, you know, why do you keep kind of doing it? But I, I, for me, it, I don't find it stressful because, I, 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 you know, it's it's what I enjoy to do. I'm still learning all of the time and making a lot of mistakes with it. But I found a way to integrate it into kind of my life so it kind of doesn't dominate, it's part of it, not, you know, something that kind of works against it.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting and I love the the word you've used there, being integrate, you know, time and time again I hear people and business owners and people out there doing it who will say that work-life balance is a misnomer, it's, it doesn't exist. Um, you know, it's the way you integrate things in your life that makes it, you know, achievable, doable, you know, and I, I still think that old saying of, you know, love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life still rings true. Sure.
1: Yeah, no, look, it's a, it's a, that's a whole podcast in its own right, Simon, isn't it? I think the, <laughs> the integration is, you know, the, 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 is, the, is what I, I always say we all need to look for because uh, I think, he, he, you know, even over the last year and, you, you know, you guys are in lockdown, we're out here, but the integration, we've learned a lot about how we can do work um, in a lot more of an efficient way, and I think it's. Uh, but there is sacrifices to be made, right? I think that's the the reality. You can't do everything all of the time. So I, I think it it is about understanding what what your skill set is, what you want, how you want to do it, and integrating it into the business. And and you know acquisitions are hard, right? In terms of buying businesses and, and acquiring them and integrating them, and then is is a difficult thing. So you, it definitely something you need to choose. For
0: Sure, yeah, so back onto CMS. Um, you, you've started with quite a plan and you, you're quite clear on what the end game looked like. How long was it after you started that you actually sold the business? Four years. Four years, okay, so that's a tight time frame, you know. So, I, I often have got clients who maybe have been in it for 10, 15, 20 years, and, and I'm always asking them at, at what point did you start preparing for sale? But four years, I mean, it must have been kind of front and center, you know, if I'm not wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it was because, and, and look, it, it was only because I'd had the MA experience within the corporate. I'd, I'd seen how those businesses buy, how they profile, what they look for. So I had some kind of inside track on that. Um, so that was that was massively helpful, right? I think. But um, on, on your point on. This is something also which I think is uh, I touch on try and touch on a lot, and what I try and kind of think about all of the time um, is I think a lot of I would also caution against people thinking about from day one I want to build this business to sell it, right? I I, I've done a bit of um, angel investment and stuff like that. I actually I don't enjoy it uh, for a lot of reasons because I like to be an operator, so I like to you know be involved in the business and grow it and 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 then exit it um but i think you have to have a like almost a twin track approach so you have to have i'm going to i'm going to run this business i'm going to i'm going to integrate it into my lifestyle i'm going to be successful i'm going to be profitable all of those kind of things and i may also consider thinking about who who would acquire this I think it's a, because it, it's a mistake to sit there and from day one and think about, I'm going to build this business to for it to be acquired because it's um, ultimately businesses are acquired mainly because they're successful. And, and often there's two measurements of acquisition, one revenue or the other is EBITDA and in terms of profitability. So you need to think about those two things. Uh, so, an understanding of the landscape an understanding of who who's active in your market good definitely need to do that but not try and just focus purely on selling it from the beginning because you know that's you know that's going to be definitely a a, a long road
0: it's, it's an interesting comment and it's and it's a distinction i think some people struggle with um one of my previous guests i i thought sort of put it well and he's in the saas space and he said, look, I started this business always thinking in the end it's likely an acquisition is probably the, the eventual exit. But he said, I didn't put a specific time frame on it because if all you do is obsess over selling the company, you spend all your time thinking about that rather than actually building something of value and delivering value to your customers. So, and, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the distinction you're making here, right, is you need to think about the core business and what you do and, you know, Have one eye, perhaps, on the uh, on the end game.
1: Yeah, completely, and and that's the that that, that's the I've I've sat in a lot of kind of meetings, not a lot, but maybe maybe twenty or thirty meetings with businesses that are at the start of looking for investment or whatever that might be, where that's in the deck, right, right at the beginning. We're going to sell this for X amount of you know dollars. Uh, how, how would you know that, right? You know, um, I, no problem to say, look, it, the ultimate aim is to basically exit this. And we've done some research around valuations, cool. But actually thinking about that within the the, the actual strategy is, is, is always going to be a massive distraction.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. So you obviously with CMS, you had a bit of an idea of who the potential buyers could be. Um, how did you go about, Sort of kicking off the process.
1: So we, um, what we what we did was we we got the business to a particular scale. We had an idea at the beginning who the acquirers were in the market, and it was one of one of those companies was the companies I work for, a company called Travis Perkins. Um, we actually sold it to a company called SIG, who at Sheffield Installations who were a 250 business, um, but in a similar space. So we had an idea. And what we did was um, which again, from an m a perspective, A strategies, you know one of the things if you're once the business hits a particular scale, one of the things that I would suggest to your listeners start to think about is you know, who are those acquirers, and how can you start to build a relationship with them right Because these things don't happen by accident um so we 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 I was and and starting to look at you know who are those acquirers, who are the people in those, who are the corporate development people within there we need to build a relationship with. Also, you know, the profile of the business, i.e. the PR, how we're positioned in the market, you know, um our our brand, all of those kind of things and you know, is is important in that. And what we did, Simon, is we we got to a point in the business where we had a fork in the road where we either took on some external investment to grow further, or we we would be taken out at that point. And um, so it, it, we, as we went through that process, it became clear that you know the, the offers that were on the table were attractive, and and we would take them. And we had a, a number of interested parties um, at that time, which also helps. But I think from a point of view, we didn't run a formal process. So we didn't, you know, um, go to a corporate um, or a, to a, a consultancy to sell the business. You know, and this is one of the things that I would, um, that is sometimes the right thing to do. Absolutely. But if your client of profile is good in the space and you're developing relationships, maybe with those organizations, then that's the smart thing to do. And, and. Um, and that's definitely the approach we took. And it was just it was because those businesses were so acquisitive, buying, specialism, capability, and location. It was a it was kind of a simple process that we we knew we would have offers on the table, or we would have you no. Know, let's go on for the next level of phase of growth and take on some debt or some equity um, to to grow the business to another to another um, another another level. Yeah. It, it's
0: worth it's worth mentioning here, and and I take your point about you know advisors versus you guys didn't obviously use an advisor. In, in fairness, with your experience, they had an your company had an advisor, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and and where we've seen where we've seen so many problems, and even guests on this show, the, where they got the tap on the shoulder, somebody they knew, a client, a supplier, a competitor. And then ended up in a six to nine month process where they keep lifting the kimono and giving more private information. And and in the end, all they felt was that they got completely milked for information and then got lowballed or some other reason why it all fell over. And, and in fact, I chatted to a guy literally last week and it happened to him three times. He said, I'm done. I'm, I don't believe this company is saleable. Um, <laughs> and, and it very much is. But it's. Um, I think there's that part of it. I mean, clearly you've been through this and being able to... Read the language, take the temperature, understand the tricks of the trade, and and where people, you know, whether people are really serious and genuine about a transaction or not, is is I think half the value.
1: Yeah, no, no, one hundred percent. I think as I said, nothing. Um, it, it that was our particular strategy at the time. But in 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 the business I run now, BPX, you know, we we have lots of advisors, and um, because it, <laughs> it's an industry, so I don't have that inside industry knowledge of don't have those connections that I did in that industry. So you're completely right. I think having the right, you know, good lawyer, good corporate, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, individual, you you know, you can advise on the finance side of things and how to position the business. I guess it it all depends on if you want to run a formal process, right. From a point of view is we, if we ran run a formal process, We'd have, we'd have brought on some advisors, right? absolutely 100%. We, uh, at that time, just knew that positioning a business correctly, building relationships with some organizations, uh, and it was quite low, low effort, we'd, we'd end up with the right kind of outcome. But as I said, in this industry that I'm in now, which is tech, different ball game altogether.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, and tech is kind of a unique beast on its own as well. Out of interest, um, you know, you started the process. How you must have had a number in your mind as to what you thought the business was worth. What sort of methodology? I mean, you sort of mentioned revenue and EBITDA's and stuff like that. Were you? Did you? How did you value your business?
1: Um again, at that time with CMS, we uh, we had a good handle on what transactions were being done, at what level. And uh, we knew the market was hot at that time. It was just before 2008 market crash, actually the financial crash. So, you know, particularly in the UK, you know, the, 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 the economy was growing unbelievably strong. Construction was huge. Um, the, the housing market was phenomenally high. So all the indicators and, the, the, the you know, finance was cheap so the big plcs were, were were they they wanted pipeline deal pipeline so and my history I'd knew you know four or five years earlier I'd knew what was being paid in terms of multiples um so we had a good handle on it and uh, at that time we knew kind of what we potentially could get but in construction at that time it was all multiples of of ebit so and again we needed to be so that means we need to be unbelievably profitable which then ties back into our strategy of why we then took our manufacturing or bought a lot of product, and end up buying it from China because we become more profitable. And this is where I think, you know, an exit strategy can start to influence your actual operational strategy because if we were in a, an industry where maybe the multiples were on, you know, two times revenue or three, you know, three times revenue, which happens in tech but in construction at that time that wasn't you know what they were looking to do was buy capability by customer base but also by EBITDA so if they were going to buy someone it needed to be profitable so again it's it's understanding the landscape of the market you're in um, and what drives the value is is important
0: and and just out of interest I mean what are the sort of Typical ranges that you expect of you know multiples in in a construction sector, is is there a standard kind of range or rule of thumb that a lot of people kind of talk off or in, speak in, of
1: in in construction? What it is now, I honestly don't know because I've been out of construction for you know a number of years um, since twenty fifteen actually. So, but I would at that you know from a point of view a, a kind of bog standard multiple at that time was seven to eight times EBITDA. As a multiple, but you know now it could be could be more, could be less. I don't know. But at that time, that was the kind of you know the kind of out of the gate type you know approach.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and worth mentioning with stuff like that. I mean, it's it, there is a danger in talking about kind of standard multiples because there's so many variables, right? You know, a company that's trading with a hundred million revenue and a twenty million EBIT is going to trade at a different level to a you know a company that's only got ten million revenue. So, um, so there are a lot of factors there. How long did the process take? You know, from the moment you sort of, I guess, reached out or started conversations. How long did it take? What did it look like? What was that? What was the process like?
1: A year, about a year, I think, if I remember rightly. Yeah. We, again, I, I, I had some good idea on this. It was, you know, and one of the things I would say to your listeners, and you'll know this, um, better than I do. These are the process is always ups and down. So, if you have even if you have a really, really enthusiastic buyer of your business, and if they are a PLC or a listed business, that is going to be a painful process. Right? You know, um, <laughs> I um, I actually talked to a um, uh, an individual the other day who uh, heads up um, corporate development within a space that I'm in within a, a very large agency, global agency, and. He was telling me about the process, and 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 they have a sixty to seventy percent dropout on due diligence, right? Because their due diligence is so rigorous uh, that they kind of in their pipeline expect sixty to seventy percent of the people to drop. Now that that's enormous, right? So I think, but for us um, again, because we were thinking about this, the business was unbelievably clean. The information was available um we structured it in a particular way so we knew when we had due diligence coming in which is you know and from a big you know firm might be kpmg or whatever it was then that would be a clean simple process and it was but it still took a long time so the book and lots of ups and downs and lots of negotiation and you know people can leave um uh, the people you're dealing with can leave in a big corporate, all of these kind of complications. Um, but we've got it over the line in about a year.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that, and that's fairly typical from the deals I see. Um, what I think is interesting, you know, what you said earlier in the call is a sort of almost a pinch of luck and timing and all these sort of variables that can come into play. And I've seen time and time again um, we had the right buyer for a business but the, the timing was just wrong for them. And so, you know, and and sometimes that is, as you say, internal people, and let's be honest, you know, corporations can be fiefdoms. Um, You know, the 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 Australasian team's, you know, got a different approach to the Asian team or the whatever it might be. And so you've got bigwigs who may have different ideas and they can't agree and therefore the deal doesn't get done. Um, So there's... I think all of those factors when you're selling to to large and particularly listed enterprises is is going to come into play or at least you've got to expect that it could
1: yeah definitely and I love what, what one of the things that I would say uh, to your listeners is if you get involved in a transaction, make sure you have the right team around you because one of the things that um, and, and and you you stay operational. So what I mean is, is and you'll you'll know this is what I see, have seen so many times when I was on when I've been on the, the kind of the buyer side, um, is the business that you're buying takes a dip, right? Because they get distracted, and and that is a very you know, um, for a buyer can be a real warning sign. And um, because obviously, if, particularly if it's driven by numbers and forecasts, which often they are, not just the years you've done, but the years you're going to do, and you start to see that tail off. And it can just be that the owner, the management team get distracted, they're focusing on the deal, they come away. So make sure you get that team around you when you go into that transaction that can give you a bit of shield from that process.
0: Yeah, look, that, that that in itself could be a multimillion-dollar piece of advice for our listeners. It's it's so critical that you keep doing your day job <laughs> and running your company. Yep. So, um, no, that's that is that's absolutely brilliant. So it took about 12 months. W- were there any kind of curly stuff that came out in due diligence? Was there any f- funny business things that came at you from the, you know, <laughs> unexpected stuff that popped up?
1: No, not really. There may have been, but I, it, it was a while back. But I, I, no, not really. I think it was all kind of predictable. We we had a bit of chipping away at the price, as yeah. you'd expect, and we had to <laughs> pretend yep. that um, as you'd expect. And obviously, some difficult conversations, and you know, people willing to you know kind of walk away, and all that kind of stuff that that goes with it. But they're all kind of yeah, yeah. stuff. I think um, if you know you've got a committed buyer then you work through those issues, you know, um, together. And I think from a point of view of, um, but no, we, 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 again, it comes back to making sure the business is clean and making sure it's, it, the information is available. And if you want a good price and you want to ask so- someone to pay a lot of money, then make sure the quality of your information that you provide is, is good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Another brilliant tip. I mean, if they ask you for simple documents and it's hard to produce, all it does is raise big questions about how you run the rest of your business, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And that, and that's the, that's the, so we, you know, if you do run into a process again, think about how can you put that information together, a presentation of it, does it send the right message? Who's the audience? All of these kind of things are typical, not in the job spec of a normal, typical owner.
0: Yes. Yeah, indeed. Um, Lee, that's fascinating. So, so, Tell us about what what are you doing these days? Tell us about Blueprint X.
1: So Blueprint X, is so I, I left CMS, um, stayed on for about a year after the acquisition, then uh, moved. I had some borrow and out clauses, as as you often do with these types of transactions. Uh,
0: uh, yeah, I was going to ask, was there an earn out? What was the sort of structure like, you know, cash up front versus other sort of stuff?
1: Short earn out, and, um, which we negotiated and... Um, uh, which I would advise, in, if you're going into a PLC, you only want a short-term out, and you don't want that leveraged on on anything too 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 onerous. And so we we negotiated that, and I did the integration, handed it off. I had some bar and out clauses which were heavy for quite a long time, so I, I couldn't do another construction project business in the UK. So I was uh, what I did is kind of we did similar thing with a uh, partnered up at a German company a company called BSW and um about a billion dollar business and um to to set their operation up in the US so sorry Middle East they had an operation in the US operation in 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 Germany um and in ANZ but they didn't have the Middle East so I I basically it was that was a kind of pre-pack um Business, so I set that up for them. Three years later, they acquired um, the whole business. So it was very much a pre-pack deal right at the beginning.
0: So, so just just to clarify, so how long was your restraint of trade, and was it just for the UK?
1: Five years, and just for the UK.
0: Yeah. Wow. So I mean, five years is a decent. I. Yeah. That's it's it's, it's yeah. the, the upper end of what we see. Yeah. Yeah. So.
1: You, you, you've you've got to really understand what you're getting yourself into when you sign up to five years. And and they were th- those businesses are very. Uh, were, were, the reason for that is they were unbelievably aware of the possibility of entrepreneurs then resetting back up, and they'd had that. And um, they were they were. I was a kind of red line, right? You, this is it. Yeah, uh, you, yeah. you, you sign up to that, we don't go any further. And um but that was, so we we knew what we were signing up to. And so the Middle East, outside of the UK, that was fine. And um, so I, I, I set that business up with that German firm or set the organizational structure up, got the sales to particular revenue and then um, exited that business with them. And how I got into what I do today, which is, you know, BPX is a... Um, uh, is a technology enablement business. So we, we uh, in marketing and sales, and which I, I kind of started in 2015, and as I'd used the technology in those projects. So I, um, I knew the power of the technology in terms of CRM and marketing automation and all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to do something in a different industry. So I did construction, I then did an international business, so I wanted to do an international business but a different industry. So BPX was that vehicle, and we've scaled that to now 50 people globally. And we started our actual buy and build model in ANZ in Australia um, about two years ago. We acquired the business there, uh, based in Sydney, and um, and we're now on um, on a, a bit of a buy and build run to acquire more businesses globally, uh, more capability, uh, owner managed run businesses. Um, over the next three to four years,
0: mm. what, what sort of uh, typically uh, the sort of size businesses that you look to acquire?
1: Typically, we have two profiles. So the, the, the smaller end uh, would be you know one to two billion dollars a year,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, US in, in revenue, in revenue, or is yep. that it? Yep, in revenue. And uh, but at the bigger end, and as we grow, the, the the deals become bigger and bigger. Anything up to ten million, fifteen million in revenues. Yeah, um, and this is these are services businesses, so people orientated businesses. Um, lots of capability, uh, great reputation, um, but again, kind of plugging them all together in that buy and build model.
0: Mm. No, it's it's really interesting. Do you have any kind of broad, uh, I guess, rules theories around size of acquisition? Like, uh, you know, I, I, interestingly, I saw a transaction happen recently. It wasn't one of ours, but. Where the company doing the acquiring was actually smaller than the company they were buying, which is quite unusual. Um, often, I see people say there's thresholds, right? And you know, with it, so I'm just curious. Like, would you buy a company that's up to 10% of your revenue, up to 50% of your revenue? Do Do you have any of those kind of things that you think about when you, you're looking at acquisitions?
1: Um, no, not really. I think our criteria is based on now on uh, capability and location. We we have some deals in the pipeline with bigger big businesses that are bigger than us. Th- those deals okay. are financially possible. Um, mm. They, in terms of, but they, it's more about ego. You know, they're more e- uh, ego-driven deals. So you know, if, if we were to buy a bigger business than us, uh, and I'm buying it from a you know an owner manager, if it's a divestment, then that's easier. But if, if if I'm buying it from an owner manager, then it, it, it's the, it, we have to get over the ego first. But financially, yeah, definitely possible to do. Um, it all depends on again. You know, our model is about what we bring is kind of that that acumen around operational, organizational integrations, financial modelling, and all of those kind of you know market expertise. So um, you know it's a um, it's a it's a it's a different proposition for the owner we're looking to buy businesses and the owners stay in seat for another two to three years so it's a different proposition
0: yeah yeah that makes sense um can I ask you and 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 i'm 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 being a little mindful of time here and I appreciate how much you've shared with me so far um having done acquisitions like you have and being on this sort of build by buy build model is there any particular issues you find that pop up most when it comes to integrating one another company into your own
1: oh um, so many um so many <laughs> I think uh, that if you can get the deal structure right so um, let's talk about earnouts right so if it's a short earnout and you're acquiring one hundred percent of the business if, but if're if it's a long earnout and you're acquiring fifty one percent of the business then you're going to have different problems and different challenges yeah. so but ultimately the integration is around people you know that the, the, these are the things that are the most challenging and you know the most difficult to do but if you're buying a business and their owner manager is going to leave on day 1 which sometimes is the right thing to do then that's that's fine right you know um uh, and and businesses will do that it all depends on your model but ultimately it all comes down to people in the end uh, systems processes, yes. New ways of working, yes. Uh, you can have hundred day integration strategies. I've, I've done different. I've been involved in different approaches. Ultimately, it all comes down to uh, the people and getting the people on board. Um, you know, with um, you know that change.
0: Yeah, uh, it's, um, that's that's a great bit of advice there. I, I had a chap once who's a lot smarter than me tell me that. Strategy planning, all this sort of stuff. It's it's one percent vision and ninety nine percent alignment. Oh yeah. <laughs> what it doesn't matter what the goal is. It's it's just once you get people aligned, they'll do amazing things.
1: Yeah, I completely completely agree to that. And getting in line is is the easy bit. Staying in line, aligned is is a bit harder. Um, and it, <laughs> it, it is the it is the, the the magic ingredient, yeah. Particularly with you know with M and A and buy and build.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating stuff, Lee. I'm I'm so cognizant of time here because I, I could talk to you all day, and and God forbid if we actually had a glass of wine in our hand or something, I'd be terrible. But uh, <laughs> um, I, I'd like to put you on the spot in a moment and uh, and ask you, you know, if there is maybe one tip that you'd share with your fellow entrepreneurs who who are looking to perhaps grow and exit one day. You know, I've, you've already shared so many, but um, b- before we do that. Uh, are you happy for people to reach out to you if somebody wanted to touch base or contact you? And and if so, what's the best way to do that?
1: Yeah, look, no, absolutely, Simon. And um, the 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 best way is through LinkedIn. Um, easiest way, just put my name into LinkedIn and BPX, my, and you'll you'll find me, and I'll, I'll I will connect, and I will answer. Um, and cool. if I can help in any way, I'm I'm still learning um, everything from great advisors and and people along the way, but happy to help as, as much as I can.
0: And as we always say on the show, if you do reach out to Lee and you send him a connection request, please put a little note, let him know that you you heard him on the Buy, Build, Sell podcast. So he has a little bit of context. Lee, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you making the time. I know it's sort of after hours uh, or early hours for you where you are, at, um, but, but I appreciate you giving up your time and sharing your story and, and the insights. I, I, I know that our listeners will will really get a lot out of this episode. Um, and, and before I let you go, I, I, you know, is there one parting sort of piece of wisdom that you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, look, I, I would and I have said it, but uh, I think it's absolutely crucial is if you're make sure if you're thinking about a transaction or starting to run a process to sell your business or acquire a business get a team around you that can can shield you from the whole process right that is for me the the number one thing to do um because that's where uh, a lot of work can go in, and um, it can quite quickly your business, your day-to-day business, can be literally just uh, such a distraction because it's shiny and it's new, and it's you know potentially has a lot of money at the end of the at the. Um, so it's it's human nature, but resist that. Don't do it because it could be the biggest thing that trips you up. So that would be my one tip.
0: Yeah, and great advice, Lee. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks, Simon. Appreciate it.
0: The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder Questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.